Welcome to this Jeremy Bamber and White House Farm podcast. In this episode, we discuss the circumstances surrounding the police making their initial arrests, not only of Jeremy Bamber, but also the supposed hitman and other witnesses they needed to question. Jeremy was taken into custody on two occasions. The first on the 8th of September 1985, after Julie Mugford spoke to the police, which resulted in Jeremy being released without being charged for the murders. Here we give an outline of the questions put to Jeremy on his first arrest, between the 8th and the 13th of September, and then we set out the circumstances of his release after six days of questioning. The second arrest was on the 29th of September, when he was charged with the murders of five members of his family. This is when he was remanded in custody, and he has remained in jail ever since. Julie Mugford's story of Jeremy's involvement was reported to the police on the evening of the 7th of September by Malcolm Waters, who was concerned that she refused to go to the police with the story she had told him. Within hours of the police receiving a telephone call from Malcolm, who reported what Julie had told him, the police drove to Malcolm's home in Colchester and took Julie and her best friend, Elizabeth Rimmington, into custody. The girls were taken to Witham Police Station for questioning. Julie then reluctantly began talking to the police, telling them her fanciful scenario of Jeremy's involvement in the crime. Julie was interviewed under caution for almost seven hours, and yet the audio recording and written records of her interviews remain undisclosed. DCI Taff Jones, accompanied by DC Barlow, DI Miller and DC Clark, arrested both Jeremy and Brett Collins at 7.45am on Sunday the 8th of September at Sheila's flat in Maidavale, London. Jeremy was not placed in handcuffs and at this early stage he believed he was attending the police station voluntary simply to answer questions. Jeremy has since commented that he thought the reason for his arrest was to question him about the burglary O.C. Road caravan site. It didn't occur to him that he was about to be accused of murdering his family. Jeremy and Brett were driven to the police station in an unmarked police car in the company of DCI Jones and his police driver and arrived at the station at 9.05am. Jeremy was placed in the female cells at the station as they were vacant and it was at this time that Jeremy saw Julie Mugford's name written on the board on the cell door, which confirms that she had been arrested rather than giving evidence voluntarily. Over the next five days, Jeremy was subjected to questioning by the police in two distinct sessions, one of two days duration and one of three days duration. The first two days were investigative in nature when Jeremy was quizzed in order to better inform his interrogators about various aspects of the case. Jeremy was refused a solicitor at this stage. The second session of three days of questioning were very different, as by that time the police seemed no longer interested in considering the correctness of Jeremy's account and appear to have already decided Jeremy was going to be prosecuted for killing his family. Therefore, the interviews were conducted with the purpose of constructing a prosecution case. Examination of the record of the interviews reveals that these consisted mainly of trying to get Jeremy to say things that contradicted 
what he had said previously, and we will tell you what happened during these interviews shortly. But first, we will discuss other interviews the police conducted with Jeremy's friends and acquaintances. Once Jeremy and Brett arrived at the police station, Brett was immediately put in a cell and his interviews began two and a half hours after his arrival at 11.07am and were conducted by D.I. Miller and D.S. Hughes. Brett was asked to give details of how and when he had first met Jeremy, to which Brett explained that he had first met him through a friend three years earlier when Jeremy was in New Zealand. Brett was then asked if he had ever spoken to Neville Bamba or visited White House Farm. The answer to each was yes. He went on to describe that he had spoken to Neville on the phone once when he had telephoned the farm after arriving at Heathrow Airport on a visit and had been trying unsuccessfully to get hold of Jeremy. He said he'd met Neville four or five times at the farm. Brett Collins informed D.I. Miller in more detail that the first time was at White House. We'd gone trout fishing and went to borrow his rods. D.I. Miller asked him if he could tell them any details about one of the other meetings he had with Jeremy's dad. Brett responded, I was working the fields driving a potato harvester. He visited the fields. It would have been all through July, also twice at Jeremy's home. When he brought over the mower for me to cut the lawn, I didn't see him after that. The next question came out of the blue and was completely irrelevant, but D.I. Miller could not resist asking, Did he, Neville, know you were gay? Brett immediately replied, I don't know. Jeremy doesn't discuss his friends. Moving on, Brett was asked if he had ever met June and Sheila, and he said he had met June once on the occasion when he went to the house to collect the fishing rods. He also saw her once in a field, but admitted that he had never met Sheila or the twins. Even though Brett had stated that he had never spoken to Sheila and never even met her, he was asked what he knew about her. Brett replied, he, Jeremy, mentioned she had gone through a bad time mentally, that she had twins and that she was living in London in a flat. Seemingly satisfied, that line of questioning now stopped. The interview continued, with D.I. Miller now probing for any knowledge Brett had of Jeremy's involvement with any drug use, and if he had any knowledge that Jeremy had spoken about anyone called Matthew. Brett said, smokes marijuana, yeah, from time to time, half of England does, and added that he had never seen Jeremy selling drugs and had never heard him speak about anyone called Matthew. Brett Collins was asked to explain where he was at the time of the murders and replied that he was in Greece at the time. Doubting what he had been told, D.I. Miller immediately picked up Brett's passport to double-check this information and after a brief look at the pages of the passport, Miller appeared satisfied that it confirmed Collins had been in Greece on the 7th of August. Brett went on to outline the circumstances of how he found out what had happened at White House Farm and told Miller and Hughes... I was walking to catch a bus, but I hadn't read a paper for a long time. At a little stall, I picked up an English paper and saw it right across the front page. That afternoon, I phoned. Jeremy was somewhere else for a couple of days. I left a message that I was coming over. I could get over on a flight for a few days. I stayed a night in London, then came down by train to Colchester. Jeremy picked me up. That was on the 12th of August, and again Miller picked up the passport and again discovered that the passport confirmed this. After this was established, it was time for Miller's crunch question, which was, Has Jeremy ever discussed the murders with you? Brett replied, Yes. 
If D.I. Miller was now filled with excitement at the prospect of Brett implicating Jeremy, this didn't last for long, because when he was asked what Jeremy had told him, Brett replied, just couldn't believe what had happened, that the system was unstable at times, he, he couldn't believe it. Not quite the response D.I. Miller possibly hoped for. The questions continued. Has Jeremy ever told you he committed these murders? No, and I don't believe he could have. Has he ever told anyone else he's committed the murders? Not in front of me. I, I never heard any such conversation. The only persons I've met here are his recent friends, Julie, Liz, Charles and Michael. It's never been mentioned while I've been there. I put it to you he confided in you about shooting his parents. No, definitely not. He couldn't do a thing like that. I haven't seen a nasty side of him. He's always been straight up with me. I, I couldn't see him doing anything like that at all. The first interview concluded at that point and Brett was returned to his cell. The questioning resumed in the late afternoon when the decision was made to detain Brett in custody for the night and he was led back to his cell. The following day, on the 9th of September, at 11.30am, D.I. Miller and Hughes saw Brett again and requested that he should provide a witness statement to summarise the interviews he had undertaken with them. Brett obliged and a witness statement was taken at 3.10am. Once the statement was finalised, Brett Collins was released from custody with the police concluding, as stated on the arrest and custody documents, that there was no evidence to connect him with the murders and any charges against him were refused. The document states, Charge refused. Brackets state briefly reason why. Brett Collins was arrested together with Bamber on suspicion of being concerned with the murder of Bamber's mother, father, sister and her two children recently at Tolshunt Darcy. After inquiries and interviews, it was found that there was no evidence to connect Collins with the offence and therefore the charge against him was refused and he was released. We now move on to discuss the questioning of Matthew MacDonald, the man who Julie Mugford told the police was a mercenary and who, she stated, Jeremy Bamber had paid £2,000 to commit the murders. At 6.30am on Monday the 9th of September, Constables Collins and Delgado visited 65 Plum Avenue, Colchester, with instructions to arrest Matthew MacDonald and bring him in for questioning. MacDonald was known to the police as he had several convictions since 1957, including burglary, stealing vehicles, vehicle insurance offences, criminal damage, breach of the peace, excess alcohol and driving whilst disqualified. Several of these offences had resulted in custodial and suspended prison sentences, probation, disqualification from driving and a whole array of fines and costs. When the officers arrived at the house, the door was answered by 32-year-old Christine Ann Bacon, who Matthew MacDonald was having an affair with. She explained that Matthew was not there, and after a brief search of the house to double-check MacDonald wasn't there, Christine was taken into custody and driven to Witham Police Station. While still at the address, DC Walton seized a number of items, including 14 live cannabis plants and other drug-related items. Meanwhile, at 9.35am, 14 miles away at Witham, D.I. Miller and D.C. Geraghty began to question Christine, asking her a series of questions about her relationship with Matthew. Christine told the police that she believed Matthew was divorced, 
and had been seeing him for approximately four years. However, it later transpired that she knew he was still married during their relationship. According to Christine, it had been Jeremy who introduced her to Matthew, and they had occasionally gone out as a foursome, with Jeremy and his girlfriend at the time, Sue Ford. She informed D.I. Miller that Matthew was the father of her baby son, and that he made regular, weekly maintenance payments for him. She described how Matthew had his own house, which was about ten minutes away from hers, although she didn't know the address. She said Matthew has his own key for her house, and he could come and go as he pleased. The fact Julie had already formed Jones that Matthew was a mercenary was brought to the table, and Christine explained that she had no knowledge of this whatsoever. She said he was employed as a plumber and central heating installer in London. She added that Matthew had spent three months in Libya as a site manager for a building company, and he was not a mercenary. Miller asked her how well Matthew knew Jeremy, and she replied that as far as she knew, Matthew had been to both White House Farm and Jeremy's cottage on a couple of occasions, and at one time he had supplied Jeremy with some hemp seeds. That was all the information she could give, and she was released without charge. At 6.10pm, 41-year-old Matthew MacDonald returned to Plum Avenue and was immediately greeted by the waiting police officers, Collins and Delgado, who had been patiently waiting for his arrival. P.C. Collins stated, I am arresting you on suspicion of committing offences against the Firearms Act. Matthew made no response and was taken to Witham Police Station, and by 7.17pm a further charge was put to him. As P.C. Collins said, I now have to tell you that you also are being arrested on suspicion of murder involving the Bamba family. Shocked, MacDonald immediately responded, What? Jeremy? After a short time in the cells, Matthew was interviewed and witness statements were taken. He explained that he was not divorced and was married to a woman by the name of Ku Eng, who worked as a nurse at Severals Hospital, Colchester. He said he had met Jeremy in the Frog and Beans wine bar in November 1981, when Jeremy was there with Suzette Ford and her friend Christine Bacon, confirming that he struck up a relationship with Christine. Matthew went on to say that whilst his wife was on night duty as a nurse, he would visit Christine and another woman, Mary Southgate. If he wanted to spend time with Mary whilst his wife was at home, he would tell her he was going to visit Jeremy, which of course he never did. MacDonald further explained that in April 1982, before he left to work in Libya, Jeremy found out that MacDonald had slept with Suzette and as a consequence did not see MacDonald as frequently after this. Confirming what Christine had already said, Matthew agreed that he had met Jeremy and Suzette on a few occasions socially and had also been to White House Farm and to Head Street, but he had not seen Jeremy since December 1984, although still used Jeremy's name if he wanted to sneak out of the marital home to visit either of his mistresses. The line of questioning now focused on whether Matthew was a mercenary. He explained, There was a story about me being a mercenary soldier, but this was started some four years ago, which I never negated. That was pure fabrication, but I kept it going at times because it made people think I was somebody, but it was all totally untrue. Next came the key question. Had Jeremy paid Matthew to kill five members of his family? To which he replied, I can say that I have never been offered any money by Jeremy Bamber, nor has he ever discussed or suggested to me that I should kill his family. Yet MacDonald still needed to satisfy D.I. Miller regarding his whereabouts on the night of the murders. Mary Southgate, his lover, described her relationship with Matthew in a statement and said, We became friends and we would go out with each other. 
I do not know very much about him except that he told me that he is a divorced man and has children. He also told me that he also has a young child, but he is not married. My relationship with Matthew became closer as time went on, and we have a sexual relationship. She also revealed that on the night of the 6th of August 1985, MacDonald had spent the evening with her at her house in Lexton. On the morning of the 12th of September, D.I. Miller was satisfied MacDonald had no involvement with the murders, and having a cast-iron alibi, he was released, but instructed that he would be charged with drugs-related offences. He appeared at Colchester Magistrates Court on the 17th of December and charged on three counts, producing cannabis, theft of gas and handling, and found guilty he was ordered to pay a £200 fine and £50 costs. A lucky escape, considering Julie would have had no issue with Matthew having to meet the same fate that would later befall her ex-boyfriend Jeremy. We now move on to the police questioning of Jeremy Bamber on this initial occasion. Jeremy's custody records, dated the 8th of September, show Jeremy was placed in a cell at 9.35am and was taken for his first interview at 11am. At this time, he was not offered the services of a solicitor. In fact, the records show that Jeremy was actually refused a solicitor for the first two days, which further suggested to him that he was merely helping the investigation. DCI Jones and DC Barlow initially interviewed Jeremy, and oddly, it was DC Barlow who asked the questions, rather than the more experienced senior detective, Taff Jones. Perhaps this indicates that Jones felt that the exercise was pointless, given that he knew Jeremy was innocent of the murders. Essex Police had not fully implemented PACE, Police and Criminal Evidence Act, and in September 1985, it was still in its infancy and developmental stages. This had an impact on Jeremy's interviews, because although custody records were used, interviews were not recorded onto audio tape. Police officers wrote up supposedly contemporaneous notes as a record of what had been said during interviews. The notes of Jeremy's interview began at 12.20pm. It therefore seems apparent that Jones and Barlow interviewed Jeremy for one hour and 20 minutes without any record being made of what questions they put to him, nor did they record the responses he made. This indicates that the discussion was informal for the purpose of providing the police with information as Jeremy had believed. The actual interview notes are sparse and do not reflect a conversation that would have lasted more than 20 minutes at the most. Clearly far more must have been said and was not recorded. This was not unusual in the pre-PACE era, as the reality of police interviews was that notes might be compiled hours or even days after the interview took place for a number of operational reasons. The officers conducting the interview might, for example, be called away to attend other matters. Quite possibly, if an interview took place during the late evening, the officers would write their notes the next day rather than stay late. It was commonplace, but against regulations, for police officers to leave blank pages in their notebooks so that they could insert interview notes at a later date, or, as we know is the case with D.S. Jones, to substitute an entirely different pocketbook at a later date. In any event, notes tended to be a summary of what the police officer regarded as the main points discussed, rather than a comprehensive record of every question and answer. However, the problem with this approach was that there was no true comprehensive or accurate record of what was said. In the event of any dispute, it was the word of the accused person against two police officers. 
The interview techniques employed led to the widespread practice of police officers verbaling suspects, i.e. falsifying accounts of what was said during interviews, particularly in recording confessions that had not actually been made. During his first interview, Jeremy was asked about his involvement in the burglary at O.C. Road Caravan Site, a company of which he owned an 8% share. Jeremy immediately answered the questions with honesty, describing his actions and making a full confession. He said the reason he did this was to bring home to the other directors and people involved in the caravan site that we were too lackadaisical and the reasons why we were always getting done. It was to prove a point. At 11.26am, Jeremy was charged with burglary of the caravan park by DC Barlow and was returned to his cell. Jeremy was interviewed again later. This interview commenced at 4.05pm and concluded at 6.28pm. Custody notes reveal that notes were only completed between the times of 5.38pm and 6.28pm. So, yet again, DCI Jones and DC Barlow had a discussion with Jeremy for one hour and 33 minutes before making a written record of what had been said in the interview. What is apparent from the notes which were recorded is that by now DCI Jones and Barlow were primarily concerned with checking various aspects of Julie's allegations. For example, asking Jeremy if he knew Matthew MacDonald. Jeremy confirmed that he barely knew MacDonald and was not aware of where he lived. Jeremy explained that he did not know he was a mercenary and that in fact he knew very little about Matthew's private life. He confirmed exactly what Matthew separately said, although Matthew had visited Jeremy's cottage on one occasion. That was the previous year and he had not seen him since. Jeremy was also asked about his relationship with his parents, especially his mother June. He made no attempt to gloss over the fact that there had been difficulties in their relationship caused by her religious views, explaining it as being rough and smooth. Expanding further, Jeremy stated, it's not really fair the way you angle your question. About 18 months ago, we would have had heated arguments, which was through a lack of understanding for each other's views and due in part to mother's strong character and to some extent my immaturity, which over the last couple of years, 18 months, we have found much more common ground due to somewhat mature discussion and all of us giving a little and trying to be more understanding. He was also asked about the incident on the evening of the 6th of August when he took the rifle outside intending to shoot some rabbits. He explained that he had taken the gun from the study and when asked he described how the rifle did not have the telescopic sights nor a silencer attached to it. He confirmed that he had not fired a single shot and once he went back in the house, he removed the magazine from the rifle and placed it on the side. Jeremy's answers were entirely consistent with what he had told the police in the immediate aftermath of the shootings. Asked about the discussion that had taken place in the kitchen of White House Farm the night before the tragedies about the foster care for the twins, Jeremy explained that he hadn't really paid much attention to the discussion and that Sheila didn't seem to participate much in the conversation. He said, we talked about Sheila and the twins and their future. They spoke with regards to her coming down to Essex, having the twins fostered, paying someone to look after them, and Sheila working on the caravan site, just general things that could happen. Moving on, he was asked to describe what he had done when he arrived home from the farm on the 6th of August. Jeremy explained that after arriving home from the farm, he didn't see any of the neighbours when he entered his cottage. He said that he had telephoned Julie and they had a conversation about what had happened throughout their day. Then he watched television whilst he had a coffee and went to bed. 
Jeremy described it as a normal evening after a day at work. DC Barlow now raised a new allegation. Julie Mugford's story that he had telephoned her on the night of the 6th of August and said, tonight's the night. Jeremy vehemently denied saying those words and he also denied the allegations made against him on the back of Julie's evidence. The police claimed that he returned to the farm that night, had planned the murders for months and had discussed with someone the notion of getting rid of his parents. Jeremy was returned to the cells at 7.30pm. On Monday the 9th of September the interviews resumed and again it was 25 minutes before any written records were made. DC Barlow and DCI Taff Jones interviewed Jeremy again at 3.55pm. This selection of interview lasted for one hour and 35 minutes, concluding at 5.30pm. The police officers did not make any contemporaneous notes of what was said in this session. By the afternoon, the police were making arrangements for Jeremy to be remanded in custody, and at 5.30pm, he was given access to a solicitor for the first time. Solicitor Bruce Bowler accompanied Jeremy to court, where permission was granted to remand him in custody for further questioning. A rather mysterious change occurred in the police arrangements for interviewing Jeremy after he was remanded, as the highly experienced DCI Taff Jones ceased to play any further part in the interviews, and D. Stanley Brian Jones replaced him. It may seem odd that a less experienced detective replaced a man with great experience of murder investigations. Perhaps the reasons for this was that Taff Jones was convinced that Jeremy was innocent, and Ainsley might have felt that Jones would not be as committed to finding proof of Jeremy's guilt as D.S. Stan Jones would be. Alternatively, perhaps Taft Jones simply excused himself from further participation. From the 10th to the 12th of September, the way that Jeremy was interviewed changed as a solicitor was now allowed to be present throughout. There are no discrepancies between the custody records and the interview notes for these three days of questioning. On the 10th of September, at a few minutes past noon, D.S. Jones asked Jeremy for the very first time, Did you murder five members of your family? Jeremy said no, and he has been saying no ever since. For three days, Jones asked a series of seemingly random questions, nitpicking his way through Jeremy's witness statements, and at times becoming threatening and belligerent towards Jeremy and his solicitor. One can sense Jeremy agreeing with Jones out of boredom or simply because he was tired of answering the same questions repeatedly. In a witness statement given on the 31st of October, Jones stated, He frequently pulled pieces of fibres off his jumper, which he chewed and constantly wound around his tongue and pulled in his teeth with his fingers. He would occasionally hook a piece of fibre to his teeth and pluck the fibre with his other hand. This was an obvious sign that Jeremy was completely fed up with the whole scenario and the repetitive nature of the questions being asked by Jones. The interrogation of Jeremy focused on four main topics. One, his relationship with Julie Mugford. Two, his relationship with his parents and sister. Three, his interest in money and lifestyle-related topics. And four, the sequence of telephone calls on the morning of the 7th of August. The manner in which Jones questioned Jeremy was designed to trick him into saying things that could later be used against him, with often no logical sequence to the questions being asked. Jones would ask one question about Jeremy's relationship with his mother, then change the subject completely for the next question, 
asking about Jeremy's income, then ask if Sheila had ever done horrible things to him, then ask a question about whether Jeremy liked farming, before reverting back to questions he had already asked several times previously. At every opportunity, Jones tried to introduce discrepancies into Jeremy's account of events, and this was used to discredit his evidence as a whole, even though every other aspect of his testimony had remained consistent. For example, over an extended period of time, Jones, in effect, browbeat Jeremy into changing his mind about the order of the telephone calls received and made by Jeremy on the morning of the 7th of August. Jones insisted that Jeremy must have telephoned the police before he telephoned Julie and persisted in asserting this doggedly. Over the course of the six days of questioning, Jeremy was asked to speak about the order of the phone calls on the morning of the 7th of August a total of 49 times. The first time he was asked, Jeremy had told Jones he called the police before Julie. But following the persistent questioning by Jones and his assertions Jeremy had phoned her first, Jeremy finally agreed that this must have been the case, contradicting his initial evidence regarding the sequence of the phone calls. The alleged change in his account of the sequence of the telephone calls was used by the prosecution to considerable effect during the trial. It is evident from Jones's persistence over the sequence of the telephone calls that the police realised that the witness testimonies from Julie, Malcolm Bonnet, the civilian radio operator, and PC West provided Jeremy with an alibi. Therefore, presumably, it was Jones's task to get Jeremy to damn himself by changing his account. The police must have realised that if Jeremy was speaking to Julie at 3.30, he could not simultaneously have been in conversation with PC West, and therefore Jeremy's account was truthful and provided him with a solid alibi. Jones misinformed Jeremy about factual information, telling him that none of Jeremy's fingerprints had been found on the rifle. The next day, he told him that one of his fingerprints had been found on the rifle. However, this cannot have been the truth, as Jeremy's fingerprints were not taken until the 24th of October, and this is well documented in the police case material. Jones also told outright lies such as, I will tell you now that has been proved that your sister Sheila did not kill herself, and in fact, she was murdered. Much of the questioning was designed to force Jeremy to agree that Julie had been truthful about various aspects of her witness statements. For example, Jeremy was badgered to agree that marriage to Julie had been discussed, and that there had been some talk of going to a registry office, presumably to enable the police to say in court that Julie had told the truth about everything. At one stage, Jones produced the Bible which had been discovered next to the body of Sheila and asked Jeremy if it was his mother's. Jeremy confirmed that it appeared to be one that belonged to his mum. Jeremy said Jones threw the Bible onto the desk in the interview room in Jeremy's direction, probably hoping that he would pick it up and get his fingerprints on it. Jeremy refused to touch it. In his questioning, Jones avoided asking Jeremy any detailed questions about the murders. It is extremely odd that Jeremy was never asked a single question about how he supposedly carried out the murders. You would have thought that the police might show an interest in, for example, the alleged fight or struggle between Jeremy and his father Neville, or where his blood-stained clothing might be, but nothing was asked at all. Why? 
perhaps because the police didn't want to record Jeremy's denials and also because the police did not want to open up the topic for the jury to consider. It seems clear that Jones avoided any detailed discussion as to the methodology of the killings so as to avoid such consideration by the jury. Jeremy was therefore to be tried for five murders on the basis that there were areas of his account of events that he was unsure of. Perhaps he could not remember in precise detail everything that the police put to him and changed his mind on a relevant point when pressured by Jones but this was just as the police required, as they could portray Jeremy as a liar. No matter how much he was provoked or put under pressure to give the answers Jones wanted over a period of six days, Jeremy stood up to this pressure and responded in a calm manner, answering every question put to him to the best of his knowledge and ability. At 10.55pm on the 12th of September, Jones put his final question to Jeremy. Did you kill the members of your family? Jeremy said, no, I did not, and I did not have any plans to do so or any involvement in their deaths. After these additional three days of intensive questioning, with D.S. Jones taking the lead, who admitted himself during a police inquiry that he had been looking for something to go and arrest Bamber for, D.S. Jones had failed to extract a confession or any inkling that Jeremy may have been involved in the deaths of his family. On the morning of Friday the 13th of September, Jeremy appeared at Chelmsford Magistrates Court where he was granted bail on charges of burglary until the 16th of October when he was due to return to the court. To conclude, we asked Jeremy to give us his thoughts about the questioning in these interviews. Jeremy said, I had lost my family in a nightmare tragedy five weeks earlier and I found myself in a police station answering questions about things too shocking to contemplate. I knew that Julie was very angry about my splitting up with her. I was there when she smothered me with a pillow because she didn't want me to split up with her, a hint that she was angry. I knew that my breaking up with Julie was not going to go smoothly, but I did not expect this. Why was Matthew accused of murdering my family? Some random acquaintance of mine taking centre stage in Julie's spiteful revenge attack on me. You heard earlier that Lizzie Remington was taken into custody with Julie on the 7th of September 1985. Lizzie had been a long-term girlfriend of Malcolm Waters, but Lizzie had slept with Matthew behind Malcolm's back, which caused Malcolm and Lizzie to have a series of rows and relationship breakups. And I believe Matthew was named as the hitman by Julie as a favour to Lizzie and Malcolm to get revenge on him for their relationship troubles. The fact is, while I was in the police station, I never believed I would be charged with murder. I just answered their questions and was compliant. I never thought that whilst in custody that various police officers would be creating evidence so that they could undermine my witness testimony. In hindsight, I could not have been more stupid. I was so naive and impressionable on my arrival at the police station. D.S. Stanley Brian Jones was a very heavy drinker with a mean spirit, who I found sly and creepy from the moment I had met him. So during his interviews, it just felt like a constant game of his trying to entrap me with his drunken switching of questions. Belligerent, alcohol fueled bullying that made me uncooperative and sometimes blasé. Sometimes he genuinely upset me. So I just disliked him more every time he interviewed me. 
I still thought that nothing would come of these interviews and that after a few days I would be let out to go home. On the 13th of September 1985, a couple of mates picked me up in their car and took me for a drink and something to eat before driving me back to the train station. And that, I thought, was that. I want to talk about something huge that took place in Chelmsford Police Station over the awful six days in police custody. But for very important reasons, legal reasons, I am not allowed to do so. But I was left deeply troubled by what had gone on. I had believed that the police had a legal obligation to investigate all criminal offences that were reported to them. I had been asked why certain witnesses were saying certain things against me. I replied by reporting particular criminal offences committed by these particular witnesses that impacted upon the evidence they were given. The police response was that they were not interested in that as they were not there to investigate this and I am still shocked by this now. Just for the record, all of this still matters and it will be dealt with by the appropriate authorities in due course. I do not know how to finish except to say, do not worry, justice is soon to be done and I will be a free man once again. Dear Stanley Brian Jones died a few years ago and the others? Who knows what happened to them? Thanks for listening to this podcast. If you'd like to do something to help Jeremy Bamber, then sign our online petition to the Home Secretary for the disclosure of case documents still withheld by Essex Police. Visit www.change.org and search for Jeremy Bamber. And don't forget to share the link with your friends and family. Thank you.